All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, on the line, I've got Eli Clifton from ResponsibleStateCraft.org, the Quincy Institute website there. How Twitter hid U.S. military info ops from the public. Welcome back to the show, Eli. How you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, very happy to have you back on the show here. And so this is one part of the Twitter files that have been released so far. And there's a hell of a lot, but you're focusing on some military info ops that I gather were directed mostly at foreigners, or is that even correct? Yeah, I, I, th I think by all accounts, it probably was mostly focused on on foreigners, on the Arab-speaking uh, Twitter users. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the accounts seem to have a, a focus on on Yemen and on Iraq and Syria. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, obviously, the, the accounts had a pretty broad uh, um, audience, and there was no limitation on who was reading these or, or who was the audience for them. Right. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's <clears> the way that thing goes around. And of course, there's a helpful little translate button on every tweet, so... You never know. Exactly. Uh, it's the very nature of the platform, right? Mm -hmm. Is that, that yet, while you could say that they're targeting a certain audience, it, it, there's no way that it actually can be limited to that, which is, you know, I'd say part of the feature of Twitter, not necessarily a problem. But if anybody tells you that, oh, well, it was only targeting a foreign audience, that's just an abject lie because the way the platform works is that you can't do that. Right. Um, yeah, they could be directed toward that and that could be their excuse that they hide behind, but, uh, it's certainly no ironclad rule that somehow a, a tweet sent East stays that way or something like that. Of course. Um, the platform now, is what the platform is. Now, um, so of all the different tranches of the Twitter files that have come out, this is from the stuff that went to Lee Fong at the intercept. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Okay, so give us the breakdown here about what we're talking about. So what Lee was provided by a, an attorney, I believe, at Twitter uh, as part of Elon Musk's efforts to uh, supposedly offer greater transparency into what the social media company had been doing before he purchased it um, uh, was a, a, a set of data showing and emails showing uh, Twitter employees uh, engaging in so-called whitelisting uh, at the request of CENTCOM, uh, the the U.S. military, effectively, who are asking Twitter employees to verify or to otherwise um, uh, sort of uh, uh, amplify or to ensure that their accounts were, were in no ways buried in the Twitter algorithm. Um, and there were a whole list of accounts that were sent to Twitter by CENTCOM, and this was in 20, starting in 2017. And uh, some of those accounts are actually still active. But what's kind of interesting is at the time that CENTCOM asked for it, there's nothing inherently the matter with this. So what? They're setting up accounts. And some of these accounts actually said that they were U.S. government or CENTCOM at the time that they set them up. But 
in the time that passed between when the requests were made and, uh, well, now or even a year or two after the request in 2017, some of these accounts changed their their profiles, some of them, and, and managed to keep their verified status in some cases. Um, but the bottom line is they started to conceal their U.S. government affiliation in order to uh, spread the message about sometimes drone strikes in Yemen or, or anti-Iran messages in Iraq um, or promoting U.S.-backed militias in Syria uh, to seemingly be coming either from the region or from individuals who, who, who wanted to amplify this instead of uh, the truth, which is that it was coming out of CENTCOM. Mm -hmm. And then, so now take me through and help me understand all these Twitter policies about what they're supposed to declare and when according to their own rules anyway? Well, one quality here is is that um, it, a very simple one is that you're not supposed to be, if you're a verified account, you're not supposed to be changing your identity or concealing who you are. Um, now with Twitter Blue, obviously, and with Elon Musk's experiments with selling subscriptions, some of that's been uh, uh, tested in ways that it perhaps hadn't in the past. But what this very much showed was that there was a policy within Twitter of looking the other way or choosing not to pay attention to what uh, CENTCOM was doing with their verified accounts and with accounts that were clearly trying to conceal uh, who they were and their government affiliation. Right. Now, what, what I actually find to be more concerning is that uh, Twitter has been very public about, especially before Elon Musk's uh, acquisition of the company, about their uh, efforts to root out and to disclose state-backed um, misinformation or information campaigns, uh, information operations, as they call them, on the social media platform. Um, and, and they've done actually a pretty good job. I've reported on it in the past, and I appreciate how transparent they've been, that, that they've actually disclosed not just that these uh, campaigns existed, but they've disclosed um, the substance of them. So you could actually see what these state-linked information operations were trying to push and the scale of them. And they would release sort of samples, data sets of tweets and accounts. And, and, and they disclosed state-linked information operations from Russia, Iran, Bangladesh, Venezuela, Spain, China, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, a whole bunch of countries. The, the one country that they never disclosed was no U.S. government or linked information operations. And well, we can say, well, you know, maybe they didn't detect it. Maybe they didn't know. They're not claiming that they were able to, to, to find all of these state-linked information operations. But this is where it gets kind of interesting. They actually did because they, they know that this that this information operation existed because they previously, um, via a data set that they released to Stanford University and some other researchers, um, I believe it was uh, earlier in the year, they 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 actually were able to show that that, that these these researchers were able to detect these CENTCOM operations. It made the news. It was in it was in major media. And the interesting thing is, despite Twitter having provided this data to these researchers and it being written up in a number of publications, Twitter never put it on their website that's supposed to be where they list these state-linked information operations. And that continues to this very day under Elon Musk. So uh, I would argue that not much has changed under Elon Musk. I don't believe that the disclosures that he made under the Twitter files when it comes to the state-linked information operations are all that different than what had already been disclosed uh, mm -hmm. to, to these to these research groups who proceeded to publish the, their findings, which very much reflected what these internal emails at Twitter showed. Um, and they still have not, under Elon Musk, added anything U.S. government linked to the, to the state-linked information operations disclosures on the Twitter website. Hmm. Well, and I mean, Musk has said, oh, the FBI, I like them mostly, you know, except for a couple things or something, which in other words, he's not firing them. 
That, um, that's right. And, you know, and whether or not these pressures are being applied or whether he's feeling them right now, the truth is, is that he actually has uh, per- perhaps the U.S. government has a bit more leverage on, over him than they did over the over the previous management of Twitter because of uh, Musk's uh, SpaceX U.S. government contracts, which are really, really big. It's a large portion of the company's uh, revenue streams, at least especially going forward, are going to come from both NASA as well as DOD contracts for satellite launches as well as launching astronauts. Right. I mean, it's funny because they could just cancel his contracts. I don't know how many other options they have at this point, um, but they certainly could make life difficult for him. And then what's funny is everybody knows, right, that there's no law. It's all politics. You know, the First Amendment, you might think, would protect a guy with a Twitter uh, from being, you know, persecuted on his government contracts from his other company or something like that. But come on, that's not the way it works at all. If he makes the national security state angry, they're going to find ways to get back at him. And so, as Dan Rather might say, he doesn't need a memo to tell him how close to the line he can skate, you know, without. In fact, I'm surprised he's gone as far as he's gone. Um, but of course it's sort of like the Pentagon papers. It's all about the last guy's administration. Well, um, I, I think you're onto you know. something there that there's so much in this that he wants to frame it as being, look at what the previous management did. And that's very much, I think why he chose to release particularly well, all of the Twitter files. But this is the one that I think kind of shows the greatest degree of, well, frankly, hypocrisy that he wants to say, well, Hey, look at, at look at the previous people here. They are talking to CENTCOM here. They are greenlighting these accounts, whitelisting these accounts. Um, never banning them. And, but then you look at, well, you know what? Obviously you have access to this information now. You can suspend these accounts. Several of these accounts are still operational, as Lee Fang pointed out. You could add data about them and disclose them on the state-linked information operations portion of your website, which hasn't been updated since he took over the company. He hasn't done that. And it starts to raise questions about, so what is the point of this exercise? That you release this information that only kind of confirm what we already knew, that the previous manage, from the previous management's release of this information to uh, outside researchers. Again, the company didn't take any measures, it seems like, to, to curb what was going on. Um, but it's not like Musk has taken any, any efforts either, other than releasing the emails um, showing that these indeed were whitelisted by Twitter, which I think we all kind of guessed that that by now. But the yeah. question is, do you intend to do anything about it? Do you intend to take any actions that the previous management did not take? Do you intend to actually shut this down? And do you t- intend to disclose it on your website in the ways that you disclose other state-linked information operations from other countries? And so far, the answer to all those questions is that he's not interested in doing that and doesn't intend to take those actions. Yeah. You know, I have a buddy who... I mean, I know this guy. He's a salt-of-the-earth kind of guy. He would never say a bad word or anything like that kind of a guy. And he got thrown off of Twitter. And that also goes for, like, he would never threaten anyone or cross any sort of term of service that you could think of. Um, But he's an Armenian, and he's terribly upset about what Azerbaijan is doing right now. And Mm -hmm. that's what he talks about. And they kicked him right the hell off of Twitter. Like, all the way. One strike. No appeal. You're done. And, um, you know, like it had to have been the Azerbaijan lobby ratted on him, right? Nobody else cares. Right. right. Like, there's, there's, it is almost certain 
that some law firm or some professional entity when, you know, Googling around looking for people who are crossing the Azerbaijan party line on Twitter and then tattletailing on those people and by hook or crook trying to get them kicked off. And it works. Right. And you know what? I, I, have, the, I have this sort of you know, issue with the way that we talk about Twitter being, you know, a bastion of free speech or somehow uh, or 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 in many ways protected by the First Amendment. And in many respects, it's not. This is a private platform. Um, and, I, you know, that is what it is. You can like it. You can dislike it. But I don't like it when it's misrepresented as being something that is upholding these values. And um, so far, I think, you know, Elon Musk, if he intends to make it this bastion of free speech that he talks about, um, he has a long ways to go. And I don't think that um, the disclosures that he's made through the Twitter files have thus far shown that he's any more committed to it, because it actually requires not just disclosure of what the previous the previous management did, and you only said previous administration, the previous management did, it requires taking tangible steps to show that you're not going to make the same mistakes and that you're going to try to address these problems. And, you know, unsuspending a few accounts of, of provocateurs, is, maybe that's a nice first step, but um, if you're concerned about free speech absolutism, but it also means, um, you know, living up to your own company policies about transparency around state-linked information operations, if that's something that you still claim is important. Now, that's something the previous management's policy was, is that they said, and, you know, credit to them, they did at least say this was an important issue, that, you know, state-linked information operations is something that they don't want on their platform and that they think it's important that the public knows about. Um, and what would be nice to see now is him sort of uh follow up on that policy and I mean and show that he's willing to go further with it than the previous management was and that would involve actually disclosing that the US government has used the platform to as as part of state linked information operations. Yeah. Well I'm not gonna be happy until they turn that hall over to Ali Abu Nima. because <laughs> uh, that's what I'm most interested in. Aren't you interested in the Israelis role in getting Palestinians and their partisans silenced on this thing? Ab absolutely. It seemed as if they had a rather direct line to Twitter to try to shut down accounts. I, I think a variety of folks did. Uh, I suspect the Saudis had a pretty direct line as well. Mm -hmm. um, hey, again, when you say it appears based off of what? Oh, just the, the speed with which accounts seemed to be seemed to have been shut down when uh -huh. they had, for instance, talked about you know, Palestinian rights um, when they had been, in some cases, critical of MBS. Um, you know, accounts seem to be shut down in very selective ways. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, if that's because of just biases within Twitter, that's one thing. It's another thing that there were actually requests coming from foreign governments to to shut down these accounts. And I, I strongly suspect that that probably is the case. Yeah. Well, and like I was sort of daydreaming there, you know, imagining what probably happened here, right, is how does any foreign government operate in the United States? Well, they hire a law firm or they hire a PR firm or a lobbying group and then they just act as unregistered foreign agents and do the intervening, right? Yeah, or, or registered foreign agents, for that matter. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, which is, you know, if you take the registered and the unregistered, you're talking about the entire population of Washington, D.C. at this point. <laughs> um, it, it sure seems apparent that the foreign lobbies have more sway than the American people do in any meaningful sense. You know what I mean? If you look I at... 
Oh, ab- ab- absolutely. And, and I mean, all you have to do is, you know, and I'm not saying it's everything, but when you look at the sums of money being put into, um, you know, into the registered foreign agents, I mean, it's tens of millions of dollars coming from especially Gulf countries every single year. Um, and, you know, you think about it, say, well, is that a lot or is a little? And you got to think, well, it's kind of relative, right? I mean, okay, so, you know, let's say the Saudis spent 20, 30 million dollars in a year on uh, registered lobbyists. Um, and you think, well, okay, that, you know, that, in the big scheme of things, that's not a lot of money, considering the scale of Saudi's economy, considering the scale of the, the weapons that they're they're trying to get a congressional approval for being exported to Saudi Arabia. You know, maybe it's not that much money. Um, but then you think like, well, you know, it, it isn't, and they're getting a huge return on. It. And who's on the other side of that? You know, most lobbies exist in competitive spaces. Um, this might not be that competitive, the foreign lobby market, as it were. Right. And, uh, you know, when the Saudis dump a few million dollars in, uh, they're probably getting a very big outsized return on that spending in terms of their their ability to shape U.S. policy. I think it's the same for the United Arab Emirates as well. Yeah, no question. I mean, you see it. I remember, well, my whole life, not just, you know, the first time, but I'm always kind of floored about how low, how small the donations are that make such a difference. People are like, man, look at this senator gets more money from Lockheed than his, you know, the five closest guys next to him. And it's $50,000 a year. (laughs) Exactly. That's all it takes to buy one of these guys, a couple of nickels that that don't even belong to them. A bunch of taxpayer nickels. They're recycling back into the bribe machine uh, for just, you know, not even pennies on the dollar. It's ridiculous. No, I, I think, I think that's such an important Thing to look at and to contemplate. Well, why is that? Assuming that the, that that people are putting this money to members of Congress or into lobbying operations because they they do think there's a tangible return on it. Um, why is it that such small sums of money seem to make such a difference? And, and I think that again, I go back to there's nobody on the other side spending money. Mm-hmm. Um, and putting aside the money issue so much, there's also just they see very little cost in any other political sense, right? That what's what's the downside to doing what Lockheed Martin wants? What's the downside to doing what Saudi Arabia wants? Um, and it might just be that there's just not that much cost there. You know, it's all upside, as it were. Now, does it make the world a worse place? Quite possibly. Does it not? A, does it make U.S. national security perhaps worse? Quite possibly. Does it reallocate, you know, taxpayer dollars in ways that are probably a, a pretty poor return for taxpayers? Quite possibly. But those aren't things where you really feel the cost immediately as a politician, or maybe at all. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that these relatively small sums of money can just seem like, well, it's all pure upside to just, you know do what these lobbies want. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, yeah, the amount of money involved can be laughably low. You know, it's interesting to me. I mean, I guess once you're a millionaire, certainly a billionaire, you have too much at stake. But, well, certainly for a billionaire, but it seems like there are enough millionaires in this country. There's, what, 50,000 millionaires or something in America, something like that, some huge number. It seems like there would be enough who would say, well, what the hell, I'll do it. I'll put up a fund for, hey, if you're afraid that you're going to lose APAC money, if you vote against them on something, don't worry about it. We got your back. Just let us know and we'll fill in that gap. They gave you $5,000 last time. We'll give you $10,000 this time if you're going to vote your conscience instead of the way a foreign lobbyist insists. And just well, sounds you know, affordable, I, frankly. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, I, I think it's I, I think this is kind of an interesting question. <laughs> We're well, well off topic here, but I love this conversation. Um, but I, I think that there's this quality that, you know, funders are drawn to, uh, understandably, I think, 
to addressing the the biggest lobbies, right? That you know they see the the oil and gas lobby, they see the gun lobby, um, and th- those those companies and those organizations they spend a lot, regardless of which side of the issues you're on. Um, you can see that there's a lot of there's a lot of resources going into that. Um, so I think for whatever reason they're drawn to trying to counter those lobbies, um, which cost a lot more money. <laughs> um, for a variety of reasons, maybe they just are higher, you know, ranked in people's minds as social issues. Um, they're just, you know, they're just, they're just more lightning rod issues for people. What can I say? You know, right. um, you know, abortion, same sex marriage, guns, taxes. These are things that you know most people have a strong opinion about, um, and that obviously I think increases the amount of money that's on either side of these lobbies. But it also means that you know people, when they want to counteract one side of that, are more willing to put money in. Um, whereas, you know, Saudi Arabia or APAC, uh, UAE, um, you know, that's just something that, you know, frankly, just fewer people, I think, you know, rank as, as a high, you know, salience issue for them. It's not, these are just not the lightning rod issues that, that most, you know, people engaged in politics are, it's not their first and foremost issue that they care about. I think it's unfortunate because, you know, these are issues that actually do impact people a lot. They impact people around the world for that matter. Um, and they impact, yeah, they impact our national security, they impact our economy, um, they have so many, so many impacts on, 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 on Americans' lives. But I think that degree of detachment, you know, the fact that there's Twitter accounts that are, that are tweeting about uh, drone strikes in Yemen, you know, most Americans would say, well, why do I care? You know, after publishing the article I did about it, a lot of people were saying, well, good, I see no issues. CENTCOM can do what they want. You know, this is about a war on the other side of the world. Why should we care what the U.S. government is doing with Twitter? Yeah. Well, and I love these examples, right? These, these examples are uh, propaganda against Iran in Iraq, where you might remember that we fought two full, full-scale wars for Iran in Iraq, 2003 through 8 or 11, however you count that, and then 2014 through 18, America fought as Iran's air force and ground force inside Iraq, and then the other cases were support for anti-Iranian, that is, bin Ladenite suicide bomber forces in Syria, and propaganda justifying killing innocent people with drones in Yemen, which is what everyone knows about the drone war in Yemen, which is the barely even a war at all compared to the real war in Yemen that America's been waging there with Saudi and UAE since 2015. The little old barely anything drone war that was an absolute atrocity already, that was over. You know, that's 2009 through 15 there, through 14. Um, So uh, it's, yeah, worthy of note, right, that what we're talking about here is propaganda to justify absolutely unjustifiable things that our government is doing to innocent people, exploding them to death. That's right. And, you know, again, let's go back to sort of, you know, so Twitter's policies around this, you know, that so I actually talked with, uh, you know, somebody who used to work at Trust and Safety at Twitter. And he said, well, you know, what, we did disclose it because that, that, that CENTCOM was doing this because we shared it with these independent researchers. And I said, well, OK, that's good. But, you know, so why didn't you put it on your list of state backed information operations and didn't have an answer? And I think we should be asking the same question of Elon Musk now, you know, right. that there's a lot of, and I understand a lot of people want to pat him on the back for the Twitter files. And I think it's mostly a healthy thing that there is, you know, daylight on some of this, but pretty quickly needs to be. So do you intend to do anything about this? Or is this really about, you know, you know, selling some scores and, you know, about the last guy? 
Um, because you know what? You bought the company. This is now your problem as well. <laughs> you don't get to say, oh, I push reset, reset now and we just start over on everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so do you still have a policy against state-backed information operations or not? Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you one thing. Uh, my ads that I see on Twitter now are hugely shifted since Elon Musk took over because as advertisers have pulled out, the ones that have remained have remained awfully heavy on people who want to sell me real estate in Dubai uh, and telling <laughs> me about how uh, MBS's dream city, Neom, is uh, going to be great. Uh, I'm getting pushed these ads all day long. Um, so, I mean, I think we should start to ask, you know, what's going on here? Who's paying for the ads now? And again, are you serious about disclosing state-backed information operations? And if so, the bare minimum seems like, so you want to disclose the ones that you wanted to score some points off of through the Twitter files. Mm -hmm. You know, you've already disclosed it. He's already retweeted about it. He's retweeted Lee talking about, about the CENTCOM operations. So, you know, do you intend to do anything about it or not? Because some of the accounts, as I was saying, they're still active. Well, and I mean, there's a what should be a huge scandal right now is this Palestinian journalist, Saeed Arakat. Mm-hmm. He uh, well, tell us about him. I'm sure you know more about him than I do. But this is a big deal going on right this minute. Uh, I haven't been following it too closely. I've just seen some of the top lines about it. So why, why, why don't you tell me? About well, it? I mean, I think, I think you've been following it more closely. So he's um, I guess he's Al-Quds Al-Arabi, which is, you know. <laughs> The guy that interviewed Bin Laden, uh, the um, uh, uh, absolutely fantastic journalistic enterprise out of uh, England there, if it's the right thing I'm thinking of here. Um, And their Washington correspondent, I guess their State Department correspondent, you know, more than anything. um, His name is Saeed Arakat, and he's been banned from Twitter without explanation. They just kicked him right the hell off of Twitter. And this is a guy who, you know... I don't know, someone in the audience might be picturing some angry person with a green bandana and an AK-47 or something, but this guy sits next to Matt Lee from the Associated Press at the State Department briefings every day in a coat and a tie. He's I've seen him. I mean, he's very he's very level-headed. There's nothing extreme going on Absolutely there. not. Yeah, he's... Uh, He's what you would think of a guy, you know, in his late 60s or early 70s who's a journalist for a living. Is He looks like exactly what he is. You know what I mean? And then, so in other words, he didn't call anybody a bad word or cross and make any threats or cross any line. He's not some partisan of Hamas or something. He writes for Al-Quds Al-Arabi, for Christ's sake. Might as well be the New York Times. Well, okay, that's not fair to Al-Quds Al-Arabi, but I mean, they're good people. (laughs) Nobody suspects them of being, you know, Islamist terrorist simps or anything like that. They're good journalists there. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's, you know, it's been time and time again we've seen Palestinians and Palestinian journalists who who seem to, you know, run afoul more quickly, I should say, to put it nicely, of, you know, Twitter's trust and safety policies in being suspended. Um, it, I mean, it, it's really quite noticeable, and, and that's something that certainly predates Elon Musk, but it seems to be ongoing. Uh, again, I just come back to this. You know, it's like, okay, you know, Elon Musk wants to talk about things that have happened at Twitter that shouldn't have happened. But you only get to blame the last guy for so long before eventually it's like, well, you know, as I say, like these accounts are, that were set up by CENTCOM, they're still operating. Right. At a certain point, you don't get to blame the last guy for that. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Hey, y'all, you should sign up for my Substack. It's scotthortonshow.substack.com. 
And if you do that, you'll get the interviews a day before everybody else. But not only that, they'll be free of commercials. How do you like that? Pretty good, huh? ScottHortonShow.substack.com. Hey, y'all, LibertasBella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great Top Lobsters designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. Libertas Bella, from the same great folks who bring you Ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's LibertasBella.com. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for the Libertarian Institute at LibertarianInstitute.org. I'm the director. Then we've got Sheldon Richmond, Kyle Anzalone, Keith Knight, Lori Calhoun, Jim Bovard, Connor Freeman, Will Porter, Patrick McFarlane, and Tommy Salmons on our staff, writing and podcasting. And we've also got a ton of other great writers, too, like Walter Block, Richard Booth, Boss Spleet, Kim Robinson, and William Van Wagenen. We've published eight books so far, including my latest, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and Keith Knight's new Voluntarist Handbook. And we've got quite a few more great ones coming soon. Check out libertarianinstitute.org books. It's a whole new era. We libertarians don't have the power, but we do have enough influence to try to lead the left and the right to make things right. Join us at libertarianinstitute.org. Well, no and as start. you said, and you I'm are. glad you, I, I, it's so important that you wrote it in your article and that you mentioned it here, is that this is not a self-made man. And this is a guy who's made his money, even, you know, his car company, at least at first, I don't know all the details of this, but was very dependent on federal government kickbacks for people who buy these cars at what would be otherwise unaffordable prices in the market. And then, you know, his his major thing, especially now that it's, you know, the boom has busted and Tesla stock and Twitter stock prices are through the floor and everything. He's more dependent on the Pentagon than ever before for. And I fa in fact, I think I saw a tweet where he, he said, let me see if I can find it, because it would be right here near the top here where he celebrated the um, the huge number of uh, rocket launches in the last year. Was it 60 rockets went up or something? He says, launch 61 of 2022. Congratulations to SpaceX. So we're talking billions of dollars there. And we're talking about without that, they could somehow cut him off or at least make life much more difficult for him there. That could be his entire enterprise comes well, yeah, I, unraveled I, I, from that, I, I, I especially think, I, right now when they're raising interest rates and all of that funny money that they pumped into the stock market and, and yeah. especially tech stocks and all that is coming crashing down right now. I, I mean, I, I think that's such an important point. And, you know, linking it again to the Tesla stock prices, which is, you know, th there's another. Yes, th you're right. Exa you're exactly right that there were government subsidies that helped get Tesla to where it is now. And Tesla is also struggling now because you, you can do pretty well as a company if you're you're the only one really in the market and you're getting government subsidies, which is what Tesla got to enjoy for years. Right. The portions of time in which actually their stock price went up the greatest. Well, right now, some of those government subsidies are being pulled back. Some of them are still there. But, and I think more importantly, uh, Tesla's now facing the fact that there's competition. You know, the major automotive companies are now getting into that market. And they actually have experience in bringing cars to market that are safe, that are reliable, that have pretty good quality control, um, and that they can do it on pretty low margin. And that puts Elon Musk in a tough spot because he hasn't had to deal with that until now. And he bought Twitter for what's probably an overinflated price. 
His major uh, source of wealth is tanking with the Tesla stock prices. And the one reliable thing he has are these government contracts that are, they go out for several years. I've looked at them for mm -hmm. SpaceX launches from both DOD and NASA. That's a private company, SpaceX, so he's not subjected to more resources in quite the same way. He's getting government contracts that are pretty reliable. And as a, so as a portion of his, you know, as his, of his revenue streams, that's becoming more and more significant and important. I mean, you just saw that Tesla is now offering uh, basically, you know, huge rebates if you buy a car by the end of the year because they need to kind of juice up their sales before the end of the year, end of, end of 2022. Um, you know, they are taking actions that suggest, I wouldn't say desperation, but, you know, really trying to turn things around as aggressively as they can. SpaceX is one of the things that he has that's reliable and that may actually turn out to be one of his greatest, greater sources of reliable wealth as he needs to pay some pretty big, uh, you know, interest on the financing for Twitter, um, uh, which doesn't seem like it's going to be profitable in the, in the very near future. So how he plugs that hole um, is, I think, something we should all be paying a lot of attention to, both in terms of his U.S. government contracts, but also in terms of his, you know, foreign involve, involvement with foreign investors and foreign governments as well. Mm -hmm. You know, the Saudis are major investors in Twitter. Um, the Saudis and uh, the Saudis are clearly buying a lot of ads right now on Twitter. Um, hey, the, he's I got huge investments in China, making Teslas yeah, and factories over there too. Absolutely, absolutely, and he's awfully quiet about. You know, he's a free speech absolutist until you ask him about China, and then he gets awfully quiet. <laughs> yeah. Um, in fact, um, Caitlin Johnstone had a thing about how he had been, um, you know, avowedly supporting the EU speech rules. That would be, you know, totally an anathema here. Right. Um, that he's been, you know, a, a huge booster of them, in fact. Um, not just like quietly acquiescing to, geez, whatever you say, guys. But And I'm not sure how far those go, but they certainly don't have the First Amendment. They, they certainly don't. They certainly don't. I mean, it, it's, it's almost, you start to wonder, does he actually believe in this stuff or does he just talk about it when he thinks he has an audience that wants to hear it? And you know what, though, like, I mean, not to project too much onto the guy from other people's things and whatever, but, you know, you can see how people from sort of the center left in reaction to the woke, they turn into basically like center right Ben Shapiro type Republicans, which nowadays is counterculture because the liberals are the dominant culture. So now, as they put it being right wing is punk rock or whatever. And so then this is like the intellectual dark web is people like Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson and Elon Musk, who all they've done really is move one click to the right. They haven't really learned anything at all. They just got repelled by the left enough um, to be, you know, not even necessarily Republicans now, right? But just this I mean, I, mean, I think kind what you're of... kind of pointing to is this quality that, you know, I, I've seen in, you know, a more extreme example, I think, is David Horowitz, right, who was a far left. Well, yeah, I mean, no, he's a right. total neoconservative. I think this is this is, is a little bit different because I'm not really talking about leftists. I'm talking about. No, no but it's this idea yeah. that in reaction to not liking where you, what you saw in the political space you're in, that yeah. your solution is, well, why don't I just switch sides to the, to the mirror image of it on right. the other side? Yeah. As opposed to addressing, well, how did I wind up here, and what are the actual things I don't like, and how do I want to fix them? But the solution, I mean, we're getting pretty philosophical here. Is I, I think it's pretty rarely that I just need to flip. I just need to flip the script and go to the other side of it. Yeah. That, that 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 probably doesn't actually address the issues that you're concerned about. And the well, see, you as a libertarian, like I'm all for everybody up. abandoning whatever it was they used to believe in. But the, yes, yeah, switching from one side to the other ain't much, you know, and going from 
you and know, let's be honest, you're not engaging in a lot of critical thought to just say, I'm just going to switch sides. Yeah. And look, I get it, too, that the guy is some kind of genius who knows what his IQ count is or whatever. But you could be a hell of an engineer. You could have read every book in the library. Doesn't necessarily mean that you have wisdom or, uh, you know, a, a sympathetic point of view or uh, that you know how to balance these or those values very well. You might just be really good at putting cars together and launching rockets, you know? I don't know. That That, that is always possible. It, it, it is pretty rare to find somebody who's good at all of those things. Yeah. <laughs> and you can see, too, how, like, I mean, this guy, Jordan Peterson, I'm going to make a lot of enemies. You know, people listening now are going to be mad at me for this. But here's a guy, to me, who I don't understand how he's impressive to anyone except himself. He's like one of these guys who just says the same thing everybody already knows, only with really big words that I got to go look up in a glossary somewhere. And then I go, Oh yeah, I already knew that. Everybody knows that. Um, but it's like this avant-garde thing to be into him instead of the conventional wisdom you'd get from CNN or your other college professors or whatever, the kind of center left dominant narrative now. But if you look at, at just how like reactionary or, or, uh, not even that, but, you know, how different he is. I mean, he claimed himself that like, oh no, I'm a Canadian socialist type. I'm not a right winger. You know, I just, uh, again, anti-woke stuff, but he was always like, uh, what they call like a Christian Democrat or whatever. You know what I mean? Those kind. Um, mm -hmm. anyway, but people go, wow, something a little bit different. <laughs> I'm blown away. That's the thing. You can't go too different. Yeah, uh, I guess not. And, and, and so, and maybe, and maybe we're seeing that at Twitter. You know, it's like you're willing to talk about the problems of the past, but are you really willing to go different and actually make a difference and actually change things? Right. And look, there's a point of view too that's fair enough, especially for a guy as influential as this guy. That if he's going to completely turn against the left and the right and be a libertarian, well, does that mean he? wants the Libertarian Party to run and win the presidency and all these things, he's not going to get invested in stuff like that. Like, the Libertarian Party's not supported by any billionaires at all. You know, it's a... Which just goes to show how much billionaires like free markets. They, they don't <laughs> very much. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, there would be all kinds of things, kind of, if or if he was to move further left or whatever. There'd be all these other questions built in with that. So... yeah. Yeah. He, the space for him to move, if he's going to move from MSNBC, it's only going to be one channel over, you know? Uh, I mean, and if you're Elon Musk, you can only move so far and expect to continue to have the U.S. government as one of your biggest clients. Yeah. So that would be an interesting challenge, right? Would be like the Elon Musk make it in the free market challenge and see if he could be a successful businessman without having the captive U.S. government as his market, you know? Well, we're getting to see what happens with Tesla when there's actually competitors. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. So that's and, and bad timing, too, for, for him that they're all coming to market with these cars right at the time that the stock market's crashing after its massive uh, liquid injection it, bubble it, height it, there. It's, it's, it's definitely, definitely a, a, a pretty dangerous combination for Tesla. I mean, I'm, 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 not, I'm, not, a, I'm not, not an expert on finance, but I think you're exactly right. That there's a com it's a perfect storm for Tesla. That, you know, they've been operating essentially without competition. Now you have pretty much every major automobile manufacturer around the world coming to market just now with cars that are competitively priced. Um, they all intend to do it at scale and the stock market is inflating. 
And it's like, well, who, who do you think, who, who do you think in this, in this scenario is going to be able to afford to, to go longer? Uh, Tesla, the startup, or the major automobile manufacturers who have been through booms and busts before? Right. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and who, who definitely have the political connections, you know, built in over generations that he's, you know, very jealous of and would like to have one day. But, um, so anyway, I, before I let you go, I did want to ask you real quick about this one, uh, that you wrote at Responsible Statecraft. DC Think Tank puts hawkish former Aussie PM on China Center Board. And, you know, just, uh, <laughs> not long ago, I was reading this article by this China hawk. And I was like, man, this guy's completely demented. What in the hell am I reading? And then at the end of it, it was Scott Morrison, the former prime minister of Australia. And I was like, oh my God, this guy's bananas. And then now uh, it turns out he's got a jab too, other than uh, sitting in the parliament over there, man. Can you fill us in real quick? Well, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what it is. He's a sitting member of parliament. Let's put aside the fact that he's a that he's a, a, the former prime minister. He's a sitting member of parliament in Australia. And he just be, what was put on the China Center board at the Hudson Institute, which is based in Washington, D.C. It's a it's a sort of hawkish think tank. And their China Center is, needless to say, hawkish. It's The other board members are Mike Pompeo and Paula Dobryansky. And, um, you know, this kind of raises some interesting questions about you know, well, how or if the Foreign Agent Registration Act is enforced, because by all outward appearances, um, the Hudson Institute's China Center is now an agent of a foreign principal. It doesn't matter if that foreign principal is the prime minister of a foreign country or an ice cream salesman in Sydney, as was put to me by, by one of the experts. The point is, he's a foreigner. He's not a U.S. resident or a U.S. citizen. He's he's advising it according to the name of what the board is, which is the advisory board. Um, and um, you know, what is that relationship then? Because if it is a, a principal agent relationship, you know, then by all definitions, Scott Morrison is a foreign principal and the Hudson Institute would need to register under the Foreign Agent Registration Act and disclose the nature of that relationship uh, and the substance of, of what public materials come out of result of it. Um, now, what's really interesting in, in that reporting is that I actually talked to the former head of FARA enforcement uh, from, the, from the Justice Department. He's now in private practice. Um, and he said, you know what, like if I just saw this and I was at the still at the Justice Department, I would devote some resources to looking at it because this is like becoming, you know, as close to a, a, effectively, I, I'm paraphrasing him, but, you know, this really looks like a, you know, a, a think tank that's nearly thumbing its nose at the Foreign Agent Registration Act, mm -hmm. uh, because you can't get any more explicit about this than you having a, a, a member of parliament from Australia advising the China Center at Hudson Institute. What is this? Yeah, that's nuts. Well, how odd is that compared to the status quo with, I mean, I know that for example, the Atlantic Council is completely full of foreigners who are acting as de facto agents of a foreign power, even if they're not currently sitting members of parliament. Maybe there are some currently sitting members of parliament over there. Well, uh, you know, it's, it's one thing to be a member of the Atlantic Council to even write or, or be associated with them and be a foreign principal. Um, the question is, are you directing uh, actions being taken by the organization? Are you acting as is there a principal is there a principal agent relationship? Yeah. Well, and what so about just like, writing you know, articles? That would be, like, be sort of like you know, well, what if the Hudson Institute had a sitting member of parliament from a foreign country? It doesn't matter if they're uh, even a member of parliament, but a foreigner on their actual board. That's kind of what you'd be looking for. Yeah. Um, so I, mean, I understand what you're saying about sort of foreign influence in Washington. And, you know, Atlantic Council also gets a lot of 
funding from foreign governments, as does the Hudson Institute, a bunch of think tanks in Washington. It's something I've written about. I think it's actually hugely problematic. Um, and the Quincy Institute, I might add, does not take money from foreign governments. Um, but I, I think that, you know, the, the question about the funding, they, they can always dodge the FARA aspect by saying, well, just because I'm funded by them doesn't mean that I'm their agent. You know, it doesn't mean that that money comes with any strings attached. Now we can all, you know, wink and nod at something like that because we all kind of know probably how that plays out. But, right. you know, from a strictly legal standpoint, it's possible there is no contract that they're going to produce, you know, work on X, Y, or Z or push certain issues. Right. Now, when you have a foreigner directing a program or advising a program, uh, that's getting awfully close to something where it's like, how, how is this not a principal agent relationship? You'd have to, that, that's more the question now is how is it not that? Mm-hmm. You know, one time, Eli, I went to this thing. Uh, I can't remember what event it was, but then afterwards we all went to the bar to drink. And this guy said, you know what we need to do? Oh, it was in D.C., an event in D.C. And a guy said, you know what our faction needs to do here? We got to raise money from foreign governments. You know, the kind of people who are on the outs with the American empire. Get them to give us some real money because they're governments. They have it. And that way we can really form our own kind of lobby and think thing. And I'm like, this guy's an FBI agent. Get him away from me, right? Like, what does he say? Well, I don't want anything to do with this. And everybody don't trust this guy. I don't know who he was, but I don't like that. The idea that the anti-war movement would take money. What? We're going to, from the Ayatollah is going to support, you know, the Libertarian Institute so I can write stuff about how he's not making nukes. No, I don't want that. I can't take, what kind of conflict of interest would that raise? There's no way in the world. And yet for the Hawks, of course. But okay, take money such, from but the Germans. Such to, outside, that's such an outside the beltway perspective that you're bringing here. Because in Washington, that's actually, I think it's actually more, more normal than, than, than outside the norm. You know, I think that just kind of goes without saying is that if you're looking for funding, you know, you you try to figure out in some cases which foreign governments would be willing to support your work. Just um, it's just it, it it's wild, but I I think it's it's far more common than than we actually you know realize in many cases. I mean, would, was there ever a time in history, or would it be just totally insane if I was the president that I'd pass a law? We have a thing where look, if a foreign government wants to talk to our government. They can have their ambassador talk to our State Department. And that's yeah. it. And it would be illegal for them to donate money to a think tank full of Americans, register as a foreign agent and all of this stuff. No, they can send their ambassador. Well, I would be happy if they would just reg- if if these think tanks, when they take the foreign money, if they are indeed taking direction about what they intend to use it for, um, and if it's being used to influence the public debate, to, to disclose it under the Foreign Agent Registration Act. I, I think that there is, I think there's a vast under-registration and under-enforcement of the act. Yeah. It's just, and you know, it, I don't think Americans, you know, understand or would accept the idea that if you were to say to them, listen, you know how it is in Washington. It's ruled by the most powerful lobbies like banking and agribusiness, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Germany, England, and what? People would be like, What? The, the gun lobby, the AARP, and the Germans spend a ton of money influencing how Congress votes. Well, look, some of those things don't belong on that list. Like all of those foreign governments don't belong on that list. What, right. Whatever you think of the gun lobby, pro or con, or whatever you think of the old people lobby, pro or con. Those are right. Americans. This is our country. What the hell are right. we even talking about? Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I think there is, you know, growing 
growing public awareness, which is the one positive thing I can say right now is, you know, there is legislation that's been introduced that would try to curb some of this by requiring think tanks to disclose their foreign government funding. Um, and even also pro prohibiting former executive branch officials and members of Congress from going through the revolving door and going and working for foreign governments um, in their lobbying operations after they leave government. Um, so I, I think that there is growing concern and, you know, say what you will about you know, I think a lot of bad things came out of Russiagate and out of the Trump years in terms of how we talked about foreign influence. But, you know, people's concerns about it have gone up. And, you know, I think that is one of the few constructive measures I've seen um, that people are trying to take hold of is, you know, hey, maybe there is a problem with the think tank sector. That's um, and that's something that, that the national intelligence agencies um, as well have apparently been, been talking about in classified reports that the Washington Post rep uh, reported on, which were really interesting. John Hudson did some great reporting on it, which is basically saying that the intelligence agencies are seeing, uh, among other foreign influence concerns, specifically by the UAE, um, uh, their funding of think tanks. Mm -hmm. um, and that they see this as being, you know, a potential U.S. national security threat because of the ways in which this, the UAE has managed to sort of ingratiate itself in Washington uh, through a variety of methods, but the think tanks being, being one of them. So I, I think that, you know, hey, the fact that Congress, the fact the intelligence agencies, and I don't look to them as exactly the always the most ethical or the greatest <coughs> or, excuse me, or the best um, measure of, of our concern about foreign influence. But the, the fact that they are uh, publicly talking about it and sounding the alarm, um, hey, that's better than where we were a year or two ago. Right. Um, and, and look, that, now we all have our sites. And you know what? And they happen to be right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and now thanks to you, we all have our sites trained on the Australia lobby. Those welfare mongers, <laughs> they just want a bunch of free submarines. And this guy wants his kickback, Morrison. We've got to stop them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you, man. You're great, Eli, for I don't know how many, 10, 15 years I've been dependent on you and your great journalism. Uh, thank you again for your time on the show. Hey, thank you so much. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., APSradio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.